Thanks everyone for tuning in to today's episode of the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano and I am truly excited today to welcome our guest, Dr. Peter DeWitt. I am not going to uh, waste your time reading through his CV because it's actually longer than the book now, but uh, <laughs> suffice it to say, he's a truly impressive guy and a, and a good guy. And I'm really happy to have Peter here. His new book is De-Implementation, Creating the Space to Focus on What Works. And it's available from Corwin. Peter, thanks for being here. Hey, Ross, it's always good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about what inspired you to write this book. I know you write a little bit in the intro about how you got introduced to this idea of the implementation and then started um, applying it to the educational field. And I think that's really relevant for our listeners to hear about. Yeah. I mean, if you're familiar with earworms, right, you hear that song that in your head that you just can't get out. I was, uh, it was about a year and a half ago or longer that I was talking to a couple of people, Aaron Hamilton, um, uh, who is a, a guy that I know, he lives in Kuala Lumpur, and John Hattie, who everybody knows, you know, at the University of Auburn. And we were talking about this idea of de-implementation because we've always talked about implementation. Um, and I focused on it in a, couple, in a few books, but we were talking about de-implementation and I just couldn't get it out of my head. So it seemed like every time I took a turn, whether I was running a workshop, whether I was coaching, I would hear people talk about how stressed they are, and it it just that's where I became interested because to me it has to have a practical there has to be a practical reason to do it right it can't just be I mean I love research but it also has to be very practical and when you hear people talk about well being and workload and all those kind of things um, the implementation just fits into it and and the original medical term you know it's it's from the field of medicine is where it really started to get. Um, take steam. But <clears throat> one researcher called it the abandonment of low value practices. And I think, you know, in the education field, we can always look at abandoning low value practices. So I think yeah. the, the complication is what does abandonment mean and what are low value practices? So that's how I got started. In yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, for our listeners who are uh, on Twitter, you, you might see this meme that goes around that is, you know, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, um, and it could be anything from, I, I don't know who needs to hear this, but you are loved, you're doing great, or I don't know who needs to hear this, but Al Pacino was robbed for the Academy Award in 1974, right? <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I sense in writing this book, you uh, really do know who needs to hear this. And so, yes. If you were to think about that administrator who's going about their job, they're doing all the typical things with implementing programs and selecting, and, and they really just need to be kind of stopped on the street and said, hey, think about this, right? Like, who who is that person that you have in mind? Everybody. Uh, really, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I really did. At first, I thought, you know, policymakers need to understand this. Politicians need to understand this. But I remember a few years ago, I was running a workshop uh, or I was actually working with a group of school directors in California and we went through my program logic model and you talk about like how many activities you're engaging in and they had like 13 or 14 different initiatives and we got to impact because that's the last part of the program logic model that I created what's the impact these are having on students and teachers in a positive way they couldn't answer it um, and I was like no seriously I think you can think about it like and I wasn't pushy I was just saying I'm sure that there are some benefits. Let's just try to figure out what those are. And they're like, no, seriously, we don't know the benefits. And I wrote a blog back then called, Are You Activity Rich and Impact Poor? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just all of that stuff, I've always tried, whether I was a principal 
or a teacher, I tried to work smarter, not harder, right? I didn't want to, and I, I think that's what de-implementation is all about. So for me, what started off as, hey, I want to talk to policymakers and politicians, and even Andreas Schleicher, who runs PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, wrote the foreword. But really what I'm looking at is principals, are you giving people the space to be able to decide what's working, what's not? Directors, are you actually, directors and superintendents, are you actually giving the space for principals to look at these initiatives that you're engaging in? And what I found, Ross, over the past, over the year that I was researching, because I would use in workshops Mentimeter, which is an online engagement tool, completely anonymous. So I'd ask pretty poignant questions. And it was really amazing because there were a few things that I found. Number one was when I asked people what they would de-implement, it was always 100% of the time, always something they felt was being done to them. Right. And pretty early on, I was like, oh, wait a second. That's really interesting because they weren't talking about their own practices. So it was easy to point out what they felt was being done to them, but they never thought about their own practices. So I started to say, like, what about your own practices? Even the things you like, are you sure they're impactful? So, you know, I think anybody can benefit from this discussion, but also, you know, I'm actually talking to publishers and, mm -hmm. and people like me, consultants who are working in schools. You know, when we get up on stage to give a keynote, we're talking about the new idea or whatever. Are we really thinking about, and do we really know that this new idea actually works? And from a publishing standpoint, there was some pretty interesting research that I found that actually showed that publishers would put out books and the researchers actually took the same topic in two different books, but one of the books had a brain scan on it, the, one, the other one did not. And they actually asked participants which one was more, had more merit. And mm -hmm. more times than not, they chose the one with the brain scan. The, the fact is, it wasn't. It wasn't the one with more, more merit, but even from a publishing standpoint, you know, there's that we're putting something on, we put a brain scan on it because we want people to, we want people to buy into it. So this is kind of a call to action to all of us. It's not just on teachers and principals and superintendent. It's also on, it's also on publishers. It's on authors to really say like, this is the idea that I'm talking about and this is where it fits in, but it's, it's also your responsibility to see if this is something you need, not just something you want. And I was given a keynote, I was given a keynote in Washington State a few months ago. And I said, you know, when you, the deadliest words teachers hear from a leader is, hey, I went to this conference and I learned this idea. And I said, you know, when you go back to your school districts, you have to be very careful to say this is some brand new idea without doing the work to make sure you, you don't have teachers who are doing this already. And I had a superintendent come up to me afterwards and said, Peter, you need to understand though, my school board sent me here mm. for three days. If I don't come back with an idea for my schools, they're gonna think that I was just here, you know, drinking and playing golf. And I'm like, therein lies the problem that even when we go to conferences, are we going to learn a new idea or are we going to actually see how we can go deeper with an idea that we're already doing? Like, are we going with the mindset we should all also be trying to inform the practice of the work we're already doing, not to try to grab that new silver tool, new silver bullet, because we know that that doesn't exist. Right, and uh, there's a you know concept that a lot of listeners may be 
uh, have at least heard fewer things, greater depth, right? And um, a lot of us, I think, hear it uh, repeated and and it it's like seems a little bit out of reach because we're all predisposed to more things. You know, Peter, yeah. you've been uh, you know, a, a consultant now for a number of years. I'm in entrepreneurship, right? You know, we're, it, it doesn't matter what environment you're in. You're always thinking, well, the more things I can be involved in, the better because I need yeah. to some of them will will work some of them won't and right. i i need to you know plant my seeds over here so that if they if they don't bloom that at least these ones do but realistically what we might be doing is preventing ourselves from ensuring the success of those things that can and will work because we are spreading ourselves thin and i really thought this quote that you had in the introduction uh from peter drucker was really interesting to listen to and you know, people may he, he's well known for his management consulting work but he also was um, a university educator but he says the first policy and the foundation for all the others is to abandon yesterday right and yeah. he talks about you're freeing up your resources that are committed to things that no longer work so that you can put them toward the things that will work in the future and even you know with what you were just referring to it could be that one of those things, the idea of yesterday is not necessarily only holding on to old ideas, but it could be holding on to the belief that we always have to keep finding new ideas, right? Yeah. <laughs> and saying like, you know, when you go to the conference, um, I mean, there's a great opportunity here in having this critical, you know, reevaluative process around what's working, what's not working, what do we keep of affirming what is working right mm -hmm. and um, I talked about this on a recent episode with, with Matt Renwick around his book leading like a coach and um, part of the thing you're doing when you're working with your faculty is you affirm the promising practices mm -hmm. before you get into what needs to change you say well this and this are great right and that's the same thing here where it might be okay I went to this conference I heard about all these things and what really stood out to me was these three things we're doing are the right thing. We need we need to keep going with that, right? I mean, how do you, I mean, that's a good opportunity, but also how, how are we approaching this and saying, all right, how do we know what's working and what's not? And how do we know, I guess, you know, is there a concern that some people may have around this is not working yet, but it would work if we did this and this, versus it's just not going to work and it's you know, and we're wasting resources on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a huge question and something that when you're writing a book, right? And you're trying to talk about this really huge idea, even in my mind, I'm like, what if, what if this, what if that, what if, you know, yeah. it always comes to mind when you send it out to people to read it and they have questions too. But one of the things that I, I think about is number one, what kind of learning process do we have embedded in our, in our school in the first place? And I'm not just talking with students, I'm talking about, you know, when I was a principal, I flipped my faculty meetings so we could focus on learning. So do we actually have a space where we're engaging in those kind of conversations? Truly, if we're going to take the formal observation process um, seriously, if we're going to take our faculty meetings seriously, if we're gonna take our instructional leadership team space seriously, then we should be engaging in these conversations in the first place. And I started to talk about de-implementation in a book that I wrote on uh, collective leader efficacy, right? Strengthening instructional leadership teams. And that's a lot of the work that I'm doing right now, working with leadership teams. 
it's creating that space to actually have these conversations in the first place. When it comes to de-implementation, what I have found since writing the book and kind of when I was writing the book too, is people kind of misinterpret de-implementation as I just want to get rid of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Peter DeWitt wants them to get rid of stuff. And that's not what I'm saying. And that's why at the beginning of our conversation, I said, you know, it's really interesting to talk about the word abandonment because right. abandonment doesn't necessarily mean just getting rid of stuff. It also means you might have to replace things. And then the book, I talk about some of the big ones. So I have two ways to look at the implementation, informal de-implementation, formal de-implementation. Informal de-implementation is something that you don't need a team to decide. You know, I'm not going to check email as much during the day. I'm not going to have the phone attached to my hand all day long. I am going to check my email three times a day, put it away at 5.30 and go and enjoy time with my family. That's an informal de-implementation where you're partially reducing something you're doing. Formal de-implementation, when you're looking at it, is maybe we don't need to have as many instructional leadership team meetings because we're meeting twice a week and that's just crazy. Let's talk as a team where we can partially reduce the number of meetings or it's a replacement. You know what? Zero tolerance policies. That's one of the examples I used in the book. Zero tolerance policies are research is showing that they're discriminatory and they're harmful. So so de-implementation there means you're you're replacing a zero tolerance policy with a more equitable practice like restorative practices. Or the other example I used, and Tom Gusky was hugely helpful for me, you're taking, you're replacing traditional grading with standards-based grading. It's going to take some work to get there. Right. So from a de-implementation standpoint, it's also like, we're not just getting rid of stuff, we're actually replacing ineffective practices. One of the things that I created in the book was a de-implementation checklist. And, and it's not as um, difficult or as hard as it sounds it's actually that very tool that you're talking about that we need when we come together to have a discussion about, is this working or is it not working? And if it's not working, why is it not working? And is it time for us to move on from it now and move on to something that's actually going to be more impactful? So hopefully that answers your question. I think first to look at it from a proactive standpoint, are you actually taking those spaces like faculty meetings, observations, instructional leadership team meetings? Are you looking at those as a space to actually learn from one another in reciprocal learning, not just the principles controlling the dialogue, it's reciprocal learning. And number two, when you're looking at the abandonment of low value practices, are you looking at from a formal de-implementation or using a thing like a checklist to be able to engage in these conversations to say, no, we have evidence that shows that it's harmful and we shouldn't be doing this anymore. Right. That takes time. That definitely takes time. Right. And and you know that word uh, abandonment of course has some connotations around it but there there's a term we use sometimes in business strategic abandonment which you know may put a, a different view on that which is the proactive process of deciding this is no longer of value or it's no longer worth the resources versus abandonment by neglect. Um, well, we just never paid attention to this thing and we basically, it was abandoned even though it wasn't supposed to be, right? And, um, you know, which makes me think of how does the typical implementation process interact with what we need to do on the implementation? Because there are those certain things where 
you know, at a, at a point down the road, we may say, well, this was never implemented correctly in the first place. And the answer might be, all right, we need to fix that. Or the answer might be, we no longer really need it anyway. And it's not worth it to go. We just, it's, it's a sunk cost, right? It's, it's not, you know, so, but like, I guess how do the things that we do around over implementation or poor implementation end up interacting with what we need to really think about with de-implementation? And that's a that's a fantastic question. Actually, somebody had tweeted out the other day, it was a very nice tweet, saying that the book was very practical and easy to read, which is always what I'm going for. I don't use a lot of big words, but they said it what they found is it's as much about implementation as it is about de-implementation. And that was purposeful, but it wasn't necessarily what I began with. I mean, I started with the same trajectory that everybody else did when when I started to do the research about implement or about de-implementation. I started to look and say, oh, it's about getting rid of stuff. This is perfect. But as I started to write the book and started to look at a lot of research in the medical field, which was very interesting for me because it's not a space that I spend a lot of time in, I was introduced to a thing called the PRISM model, which is really about, it's an implementation model that's sometimes used in the medical field. And instead of you know, in the original one that I looked at, it said, you know, it's something about understanding the characteristics um, from a medical director position and a doctor and nurses, and then you've got your patient characteristics. I replaced it with, you know, superintendent, principal and teachers, and also understanding your student perspective. And in the PRISM model, as you go through it, it's got a couple of things like outside influences that could be your school community. Then it talks about the whole idea of the adoption, uh, the implementation, the adoption of what that initiative that you're trying to focus on. So when you look at something like the PRISM model in the book that I, that I focused on very early on, what I'm trying to tell, the pe tell people is, you know, I'm trying to help you with two things. I'm trying to help you understand what you can abandon. At the same time, I'm trying to help you understand how to implement in the first place. So simultaneously, they should be happening. I, I really don't want them to be mutually exclusive. I want people to look, and in fact, Tom Gusky was really helpful. He, uh, he had once sent me an email. I had asked him, how do you know that a program is effective? And he sent me like five or six questions that I have in the book about what to ask about whether a program is effective. And then what I did is I created another side of the table where I took his questions, but I put, I put it toward de-implementation as his was toward implementation. So they really do mirror each other. And I would say one of the, the hardest pieces is in that present model, one of the bullets behind um, adopting the initiative is that of maintenance. And you were just talking about this earlier. Like we are, it, it, within the education field, we are so good at implementing something the first time for like five minutes right. and not doing a lot of follow-up. So when I'm talking to directors of teaching and learning, superintendents, principals, teachers, when they look at PRISM and they look at the maintenance part, I've had a lot of people say, we're just not good at maintenance. So it's even that, like if you're reading the book or even if you're looking at PRISM on your own and you're not reading the book and you're looking at PRISM and you're thinking about maintenance, that's the key part. Like I've heard so many people in districts say, we had really good trainings five years ago on this. But the problem is you have a bunch of new employees that never went through that training and you're still trying to do this work and yet nobody is really, they haven't received that professional learning on how to do it. So they mirror each other very well. And I think that what we have to look at is the maintenance part of implementing and truly 
understanding the characteristics and our environment. Do we actually need this or did we just see it on Twitter and we think that we need it when we really don't? And on the other side of it is, as you're going through this, you're also thinking about the de-implementation standpoint, because one of the questions that I get into a lot, I do a lot of, my, my work takes me in, it's a monthly basis. So I'm working with school districts, organizations and stuff, and we work together monthly. So I might be there three or four times in person. And then the rest of the time we're doing two or three hour webinars. And whenever we're talking about new strategies to use in the classroom or school, one of my follow-up questions is, so what do we no longer have to do in your school? And I think that is a simple question that teachers and principals can ask. They don't need the book for that. They can just say, if we're gonna engage in this initiative, well, what do we no longer have to do then? Um, and yeah. engage in that conversation, which is a good starter too. It is. Before we move on, let's hear from our sponsors. Do we, I mean, do you think schools sometimes fall into the trap of trusting programs more than professionals? Uh, you know, sure. whether it's because we feel like we need to keep putting in new things or even in the sense of, you know, let's say there's a, an option of two different tools or whatever. And the one we're using we think it might not quite be the best, but our teachers really know it well and they're able to do good stuff with it. Uh, this other one might be better on its own, but it's going <laughs> to, and uh, it kind of makes me think of, you, and you did um, shared some of this in, in the book around that it's not just teachers where there's you know significant attrition, it's school leaders, it's kind of at all roles, is part of the, motivator of it like whether it's unconsciously or not the fact that if you are implementing new programs you are tangibly doing your job as a school leader versus yeah. if you're if you're getting rid of things and and you're getting questioned about what what's going on over there because you're you're doing less because you think it's the right thing to do but somebody may perceive that as well you know you can't make me a bulleted list of all the things you did See, this is where it gets complicated too, because, and this is what I tried to work out as I was going through this, because I've worked with some school districts that find themselves in complicated situations, maybe high poverty, things like mm -hmm. that. Sometimes it's tied to money, right? So right. here's the money we'll give you from the state if you do this. So then it becomes a case of we can't turn down the money because that wouldn't be smart. Right. And I think back to your original question about do we value programs over people? Um, you know, and I remember Todd Whitaker saying it's people, not programs. Mm -hmm. I think, I think there are times that we take our people for granted and we don't think that they know best. And somehow this program or this person is the one who knows best as opposed to engaging in a conversation with our people. I, even as a principal, you know, all of my teachers has master's degrees. I didn't have vice principals or assistant principals. So it was us. And there were times that I felt like the teachers' voices were not respected. And it was a conversation that I had with the teachers that I worked with many, many times. I mean, they very much shaped me into the person I am now, right? I didn't just wake up and decide I want to be collaborative. I was collaborative because I worked with a great staff that we were able to challenge each other and we cared for each other and we wanted each other to be successful. I mean, they made me who I am. And one of the things that I look at 
And I always say to leaders is, if you walk into a meeting with one idea and you walk out with the same one, that's control. If you walk into a meeting with one idea and you walk out with a better one, that's collaboration. Mm -hmm. And too often people make their minds up when it comes to programs. This program is going to be the thing that is going to save our day. That's just not true. The program is the program and it might have good content, but it's the people doing the work that's going to be really important. And people like Todd Whitaker and Annie Hargraves and Michael Fullen, they've been telling us that for years. Right. Um, so I do think that we have to, school leaders need to look and say, are they taking their people for granted as well? But superintendents and assistant superintendents could be guilty of this with principals. And I do also agree with you because I actually had this happen last year. When I was talking about de-implementation in the school district, I had an assistant superintendent who asked me to speak on instructional leadership. I just happened to bring up de-implementation, send me a private message during a three-hour webinar with his whole entire school district. And he said, I can't believe you're talking about de-implementation. What if people wake up tomorrow morning and stop doing stuff? And I'm reading, I'm trying to run this, I'm trying to run this three-hour webinar with the school district. And I'm looking at the the comment, and I'm like, you have got to be out of your mind. Are you seriously <laughs> like sending me this? What is going on in your district that tomorrow morning people are going to just start throwing stuff out the window because right. people quit said de-implementation? I'm like, well, you clearly don't trust your staff to think for themselves and actually engage in a professional conversation about what's working and what's not. That's a problem. And we wonder why we have so many teachers leaving the profession, it's because they don't feel like their voices matter. Even, right. you know, I was watching a TED Talk by Johan Hari the other day, and he has a great book on lost connections that I'm just starting to read. And in the TED Talk, he said what we, you know, we've known for a long time, even Margaret Wheatley have, has talked about this. We have so many ways to connect, but we're very disconnected. And he was talking in the TED Talk about the fact that if you have teacher, if you have people go to work, he wasn't talking about teachers, if you have people go to work and they don't think their voices matter at work and they're told constantly told what to do, that increases anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And we know from countless studies, whether it's the joint study by LPI and NASS about uh, principals, if we're talking about Ed Week Research Center and we're talking about teachers, there's increased anxiety and depression among educators. Part of that is due to the fact that they go into school every day and they don't feel like their voices matter. So this right. works. This whole conversation is so much more than just getting rid of stuff. It's about what it represents in the fact that do we actually work in a space where we can talk with one another about what's working and what's not working and not worry about mass chaos. And, and what I found is that there that one person who sent me the, the comment actually called me later and said, I didn't want you to think, I didn't want you to talk about de-implementation. It's just, you know, I was worried about, and I said, no, I know what you were worried about. You were worried about you no longer having control over teachers and that's a problem. And he said, well, our community values hard work and they need to see teachers doing stuff. They need to see teachers there in the evening so they know that their tax dollars are going. I'm like, that is not, right. that does not equal hard work. Having somebody spend until eight o'clock at night in the parking lot there so you can see their car when you're driving home, that does not equate to hard work. In fact, if you're there till eight o'clock at night every night, I'm starting to worry that maybe you're focusing on the wrong things because you're wasting your time by spending so many hours there. And I feel like you're absolutely right. 
people, especially in the United States, because I do a lot of traveling, my, you know, a lot of work internationally. In the United States, we do have this habit of people think we need to put more on the plate. We need to put more on the plate. We need to spend more hours. I cannot even tell you how many times I have heard leaders say, oh, she really cares about her job. You know, I get emails from her on Saturday and Sunday. I'm like, that's a problem right. because they deserve to be at home with their families. And so if, if that those words are coming out of your mouth, wow, they're really hardworking. They're here at night. They're here on the weekends. You're part of the problem too. Right. And it's an indication of, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, cause you also, you know, shared this, this work from Hattie and Yates in the book where they're saying, you know, for learning to take place, the necessary ingredients, time, goal orientation, supportive feedback, accumulated successful practice, frequent review, right? I would, I would propose my hypothesis that if you just had the first one time and you had a teacher that knew what they were doing and you put them in a classroom with kids and gave them whatever time they wanted without interference and nothing else, you know, no curriculum, no tools, whatever, but just said, you have all the time you need, do your job. The kids would learn, right? They would figure yeah. it out. Um, and, and that's not a realistic scenario, but the point is so much of this process of the de-implementation of the selection is about carving out as much time as we can. How much time are we not spending on things that are not worth the effort so that we can have time to spend on what matters? If a teacher is there late at night or emailing you on the weekend, it probably means they did not have enough time to do their job because they could have been doing that during normal work hours, right. but they didn't have time. Right. right, right. Uh, so, um, and, it, and also, you know, you referenced throwing a lot of things on the plate and, you know, how you, you talked about how uh, one, at least one of, if not the biggest stress factor for educators is the breadth of tasks they're juggling. And this is leads to burnout. It leads to attrition. Um, and it also leads to, you know, I re recently on the podcast here spoke with one of your, your former co-authors, Sean Slade, um, oh. you know, with whom you, you worked on school climate change. And one of the things that came up in that conversation is if we want to prioritize students enjoying their learning, like they're going to respond to what their teacher is doing. So if we're creating an environment whereby teachers are miserable because they're stressed, they have too much on their plate, they don't feel like they're really able to do their job correctly. Um, why would a student be excited to be there <laughs> versus saying, yeah. all right, like we need to create an environment where our teachers feel good, they're healthy, they're excited about what they're doing. If, if my teacher is having fun, I'm going to have fun. If they're not, I'm not. Right. And, and we know also that kids come from complicated situations. So we need to be the models to show them that there are other parts of life. Listen, I'm a kid that, you know, I was retained in fourth grade. My dad passed when I was in fifth. I barely graduated from high school. I was fourth from last in my class. And even though it took me a while and I bailed out of a couple of community colleges and, and went to my third community college, I had some really good role models that kept wanting me to come to school. Like I was, so I wasn't, I wasn't always a great student, especially in my K-12 experience. But what I did have is some role models that I knew they loved their job. They loved what they were doing and they impacted me that maybe I wasn't seemingly listening then, but years later, I was definitely remembering 
the words they said. In fact, I had two coaches that I still talk to to this day. Now, when I was a junior, senior, barely graduating from high school, you know, they probably didn't think I was listening very much. But, you know, after I went back and I ended up with two master's degrees and a doctorate, like I let them know, I always heard you. I just didn't know how to, like, I didn't know how to get there. Right. But I was always listening. I was paying attention. And we talk about those things now. And I think that's, what's important too, is that I remember the people who were miserable when I would go into school. I still, I'm almost 52 years old. Like I remember the teachers who were pretty miserable when I was there. I also remember the ones that had a profoundly positive impact on me because they cared about their job. And I, so I do think all of these things are interrelated. Um, if we're able to focus on what matters and not on all the other fluffing stuff, if we feel like we have a voice when we come into school, regardless of what our position is, then we're going to feel even more connected. Um, and I think that's a job that we all need to be able to do. I think that's from a from a school climate standpoint, too. You know, as a building principal, my job was to make people smile when they came into school every day. And that was because I worked for a principal who I almost felt like her job was to make us miserable when he came in when we came in every day. So when I became a principal, I wanted to make sure people were happy when they were coming into school. So I do think it's our job to be able to do those things as well. Um, and the kids do notice it. I mean, I, you know, they find me on Facebook, my former students and all that stuff. Um, yeah. So I do think that's important. And I do think they're all interconnected. Yeah, I think related to that, what you do have some survey results on some of the specific things that educators and teachers are interested in implementing. Some of them are email and meetings and you yeah. know things that I think everybody in every job would probably say, but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but what are a few of the ones that maybe were less obvious um, that stood out and said, oh yeah, this is something we might want to look at? You know, there were, I remember early on, teachers were actually talking to me about assessments. They actually said, you know what, we give assessments every week and we're not looking at them. Uh, we're not, they're not informing our practice. And they were very honest with me. And I appreciated that because that's not an easy one to say. So they, they decided they were going to give fewer assessments and the ones they did give were going to, you know, contribute to, to changing practice or at least looking at their instructional practices from a, from a principal standpoint, you know, the easy one there and, and the maybe it's very obvious, but the whole idea of just making time to get out of your office mm -hmm. and getting in the classrooms and doing that kind of thing. Um, but also, you know, from a principal standpoint, uh, some of the, the harder shifts, um, but something that they're, I know more and more are starting to do is the idea that they realized during, through our conversations, how many spaces they had where they were responsible of going in and talking at the people in front of them. They were going in to talk at teachers. So I think, Part of the part of what I am seeing from people who are doing this work with me and I'm hearing from them is the whole idea that it's really important for them to change that dynamic to lower their status and raise the status of the people around them. So from a partial reduction kind of piece, it's also the idea of partially reducing how I am running meetings as far as agenda driven stuff I've talked about for years though, right with mm -hmm. faculty meetings. The other one that I wrote about in the book comes from the research of Janet Clinton. And she said that um, on average, she's been doing this for over a decade, this research. 
on average, teachers ask 200 questions per day and students ask two questions per student per week. So from that, that connection standpoint, if I don't have a voice in my classroom, then I'm probably not gonna be connected. So um, more teachers, when they're hearing that kind of research and they're looking at their own practices, are talking about how important it is for them to find that space to increase collaborative learning among students. So those are those are most of the things. I would say the one that actually kind of surprised me the most was the one we've already talked about, which is email. Mm -hmm. When I was doing this, and I was even talking to Hattie about it, you know, we kind of had this lofty thought of like there were going to be these really huge ideas that were going to come up, and some have, but more times than not, people are looking saying email. And what I found is that even though it's obvious, it still surprised me because mm -hmm. it became that important for people. But in the same token, it's a gateway because when they stop checking that as much, they start doing something that might be more profoundly impactful, like being home with their family or being connected. You know, I've had a lot of people say that they hang their, I, because I tell them I hang my phone up stairs on the power pack at, you know, six o'clock um, on its charger, I should say. And what I had re hadn't realized is that I had my phone next to me even during dinner. And I thought, wow, I am, I'm not even present within my own life because I'm thinking about the next text or email I'm going to get. So even though it's obvious, it is a gateway to say, if I can do this with my phone and my email, then I'm more present in my life. Um, I'm a, I'm a, you know, and I think I wrote about it in the book. I have a daily practice of meditation and I will do anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes per day. And what I found when I first started is it's not just about the 10 minutes. It's what that 10 minutes represents. What right. that means is that after that, what I was able to do was be more present in how I hear people and not be so distracted, be present when I'm driving and not have road rage, you know, like right. trying to breathe. But I was also thinking about how it bleeds into the rest of my day from the choices I make. If I'm meditating and I'm trying to do this wonderful thing for my mind and I'm working out on the Peloton, well, that also means what am I eating? What am I drinking every day too? Because it's that mind, body, spirit kind of thing. And I think for when people are saying, well, email, is that really a big deal? It's not just the email part, it's what it represents. It means that you're giving your more time to be present in your, in your life. And it also means that you're not gonna be more apt to answer an email really quick and say things you really wish you didn't say. It's going to give you more of that mindset to kind of breathe and look at it and say, right. okay, what's a better answer for me? So there's that kind of stuff too, that I think for me, it's, it's always the gateway. What do we start? What's my entry point? What am I starting with? And then what does it grow into as we move on? Right. And it's safe to say that if, you know, both email and meetings are on the list, there's going to be some balance in it, but it's about how they're, how they're used, what the expectations and agreements are around them. You know, it's, we're probably not going to get rid of email entirely, but we also shouldn't be receiving things at night where the expectation that we're, you know, responding and things like that. So one of the questions that, Jethro likes to ask to wrap up these um, that I think is really relevant for this book is um, if someone only has a chance to read one part of the book, where you know, what should they go straight to and check out first? Look at the de-implementation checklist. I mean, much to our conversation that we were having. I mean, I would think two things. Number one, they could look at the research behind implementation, de-implementation. That might be of interest to them. 
Um, but if they're really short on time, skip right to the implementation checklist and check that out because that might be a good way to be able to, to help you as well. Excellent. Well, Peter, thanks again for being here. For our listeners, um, you know, some of whom want to learn more about your work, where can they find you? You have your, your content on EdWeek and your website and elsewhere. Tell them what they should check out. The, probably the best place to go would just be petermdewitt.com, which is my website. That'll give you access to my EdWeek blog and a seat at the table, all the stuff that I do for EdWeek and Corwin and on my own. Excellent. Well, we are going to put the information in the show notes here about Peter's book, the implementation and his website and um, his other work. So you can find that all. And please do subscribe to the Authority Podcast for more interviews with authors such as this. And visit our website, bpodcast.network, to learn about all of our shows. Peter, thanks again. Ross, thanks. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's always good to see you.